Today I'm going to start a series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so I've entitled this, The Gifts of the Spirit, Knowledge. It's the first one we're going to talk about. But before I get there, I want to remind us again that um, love is everything. And even though we're going to learn a lot about the gifts and how to move in the gifts, without love, they're meaningless, right? You can be the most gifted person there is in any of these particular arenas, but you're nothing without love. If you're arrogant, boastful, proud, you're nothing but clanging symbols, meaningless in the end, right? So I want to encourage you as we press into the gifts, let's remind ourselves that love is the highest of all the gifts, and we must have that in place before we minister in the name of the Lord. Love above all else. So God is totally invested in who we are and in our success in life. God wants to bless you and to release you into all that he's called you to be and to do. He's not only the creator, he's the sustainer of everything. He not only gives gifts to us, giving us what we need, but he helps us to see it through to the end where we're fruitful for him in all that he's called us to be. These gifts, each and every one of them, are expressions of his love. Everyone's going to have gifts. Everyone gets gifts. God's a good giver. He's a liberal giver. So everyone has gifts. It's just a matter of discovering what the gifts are that he's given to you. But I want you to understand something. Your gift should be a constant reminder of his love for you. Why do you give gifts to those who you love? Because you love them, right? And that's why we give gifts. So discovering and operating in these gifts, well, it's a fundamental part of our relationship with him and also with each other. It's a journey of faith. And it's a wonderful experience to move in the gifts that he has given to us. So let's explore the many gifts that he has given to us. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, I think. Um, Again, this is going to be a series. We're going to touch on a lot of different things. So just hang in there and we'll go one step at a time. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 through 2. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Go ahead and bring me down just a little bit, if you will, on my uh, volume. So note this. Spiritual gifts. Everyone's excited about the supernatural. America, all the nations, every human being were enthralled with the supernatural. It's a part of who we are, right? So everyone's reaching into this realm, even unbelievers. Why? Because we live in a world that's not just natural, but it interfaces with the supernatural realm. Everyone knows this, believers and unbelievers. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the spiritual realm. And he goes on to say, you know, when you were all pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. The point is, is you were led. Led by what? Not the idol. The idol's mute. It's inanimate. You were being led by spirits to the very places that you find yourself. See, everyone's spirit-led. Everyone's led by the spirit. It's just the question of which spirit are you being led by in your life? 
You know, the Holy Spirit loves you, seeks for your well-being, for your good, for your happiness. All other spirits have an agenda, and it's not about you. So, who will you be led by? Who will I be led by, right? The Holy Spirit. Verse 3, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Verses 4 through 6. Now, there are a varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Unity in diversity. We all have gifts. And that doesn't make us different. That, that creates a diversity, of course, but because all the gifts are from the same spirit, it creates a unity within that diversity. See, every gift that everyone has is a manifestation of the Spirit of God in them. And when you see that gift that's different from yours, don't make the mistake of, well, they're really not Spirit-filled because they don't have the one I have when I got Spirit-filled. Don't make that mistake. Every gift is from the same Spirit. Every gift in every person is a manifestation that they are of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, your brother, your sister, you're united with them in the outpoured gifts. It's sad that we project our gifts on each other. If you go back to 1905 in the Azusa Street Revival, one of the main manifestations of that powerful move of God, not just here, it was on several continents. That huge, huge, huge impact on the body of Christ around the world. The main, the main manifestation, the most common manifestation was the gift of tongues. And the mistake that the movement made is they said because the main manifestation is tongues, that everyone has to speak in tongues or they're not filled with the Spirit. They don't have the fullness of the Spirit. That's called gift projection. And that hurt a lot of people. It hurt, it hurt the movement itself. See, the gift of tongues, like every other gift, is just one of many gifts of the Holy Spirit. So, Whatever your experience is, whatever your gift is, don't use that as a measuring stick and project it on others to determine whether or not they're filled with the Spirit. They don't have to have your experience. They don't have to have your gift. The fact that they have a gift is the evidence that they are of the same Spirit that you are. So celebrate that diversity within the body. Realize that your gift is needed, but so is theirs. That's important for all of us. This is all about unity. This is how God creates unity. Verse 7, to each one, or to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Many manifestations of the Spirit. When the Spirit of God fills you, and that should be on a fairly regular basis. How many, how many people change the oil in their cars? Why do you do that? Well, your car is either leaking or it loses its vis viscosity, is that what they call it, right? So you need new oil. Yeah, same with us. We get filled with the Spirit of God, but then all of a sudden what happens? Well, it kind of leaks out. We get in the flesh, you know. 
we grow bored, we fall into temptation, and we need what? A fresh new infilling to get back on track, right? And so all of us, we need that. And along with that, along with that comes manifestations of the Spirit. It's how our bodies respond to the fullness of the Spirit of God. And that can be different. And I know everyone gets all worked up about manifestations of the Spirit, right? Well, these people over here, they're shaking, and this person's crying, and this person can't stop laughing, and you tend to, what, judge everyone for what's going on. Let me tell you something. You and I are not called to judge manifestations of the Spirit. None of us are qualified to judge whether that manifestation is from God, the devil, or just his flesh or her flesh. We don't have that, that toolbox. We're called to be fruit inspectors, right? That's what we're called to be. So it doesn't matter what that guy's doing. If he's like rolling around on the floor crying and, 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 and then laughing or whatever, you might think that's crazy. But if he gets up and he's changed and he's free from whatever bondage was in him, then you can praise God for that and rejoice in that, right? So when it comes to manifestations and how we all kind of respond to the Spirit of God, we're just going to let God be God, let Him do what He wants to do, because that's the work of the Spirit in us. And what we're going to do is receive from that work the outward fruit in our character. Now let's go on and we'll look at some of these. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, into another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Think about that for a minute. The utterance of wisdom. What is wisdom, right? What is wisdom? And also knowledge. What is knowledge? How are they different from one another? What does this mean? What is this in reference to? We'll look at knowledge uh, today. Let me give you a definition of a word of knowledge, an utterance of knowledge from the Holy Spirit. It's simply this. Knowledge is facts and information revealed by the Spirit directly to the natural mind. It's where God gives you some info that you didn't have, that you didn't gather with your natural mind. It just kind of dropped it into your mind. Kind of these thoughts that just rushed in, right? That came from God. That's what we call an utterance of knowledge or a word of knowledge. Let me give you a classic example. I think we all resonate with this one. A prophet of old gets a word of knowledge for the king of Israel. And man, what a story. Turn with me to uh, 2 Samuel chapter uh, 11. This is the story of King David and his lust for another man's wife. Bathsheba. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late in the afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she, was been, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. 
Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent a word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. David wanted this woman, and he found a way to have her. What he didn't expect was that she would conceive and be with child. And all of a sudden, everything's changed. All of a sudden, what he thought he could hide is soon to be exposed. So he comes up with a plan to cover his tracks. I want you to think about this for a moment. The mind will always justify what the heart desires. Whatever, whatever it is that you want in the flesh, you will justify somehow in your mind so that you can do it and somehow it's okay. That's the nature and deception of temptation. And David fell prey, and now all of a sudden he's surprised, and he's running to cover his tracks. So he comes up with a plan. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. Uriah, go home. Take a bath, man. You know, relax. Then he sends a gift with him. He's wanting Uriah to go home. Why? He wants Uriah to go back to his wife and sleep with her because he has a plan that if Uriah sleeps with her, he'll think the child is his and David's free. And that's David's plan. Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house. He didn't go home. He stayed at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your own house? Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink, lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What a patriot. What a lover of God, a lover of Israel, a lover of the king. He's saying, I won't go home. No, 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 no. I don't deserve a good meal, a good bath, to spend time with my wife while all the men are out in the open field suffering in wartime. No, I will sleep on the stones of the street in front of the king's palace. God forbid that I would go and relax. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. You know, David's the king of Israel. You know, Uriah is not in a place of stature to be able to be invited to have a personal meal with the king. That never would have happened. 
But David invites him, says, come and let him eat with the king. Yeah, well, David's attempt is, I'm going to wine and dine him and get him a little bit drunk, and then surely he'll go. He'll go home and be with his wife. All that did was embolden Uriah. Uriah saying to himself, man, I got to eat with the king. I would never go home now. Now for sure I will stay beside the king, and then I'll go back and fight and give my, my heart for, for the king and his kingdom. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Job was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were, were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him, the son of Abimelech, I'm sorry, pass that up, so that he died at Thebes? Why do you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to him to tell him. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us, came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In the end, David concocts a plan to murder Uriah in order to cover his sin. No one knows what has happened. Only David and Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is not even in this plan. David knows that by putting him in the battle at the specific place that he was to be put, that he would be killed. And then David would be free. The whole matter would be covered up. And so David, in the end, goes to the point of actually taking another man's life in order to cover up his sin. And then he takes his wife to be his own. Again, the mind will always justify what the heart desires. Problem is, there is a God that loves us. And because he loves us, he intervenes. If we cover up our sins and try to hide them, God will expose them. Oftentimes, we're given many, many opportunities to turn away from whatever sin we're involved in. But if we continue and persist because He loves us, He will come and intervene. Jeremiah 
chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12. God's intervention. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord intervenes by sending Nathan to David. Who's Nathan? The prophet. You know, Nathan the prophet is being sent to David. And what is a prophet? Spokesperson from the Lord. And what do they receive from the Lord? Knowledge and wisdom and insight. God gives a message to the prophet to give to another person because God has an agenda. It's love, justice, and reconciliation and restoration. So information's given to Nathan, a word of knowledge, and Nathan's off and running to meet. David the king who thinks he's finally got his bases covered. Nathan came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you're the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. That is what's called an utterance of knowledge. That is the gift of the utterance of knowledge, a word of knowledge. Now, let's continue to read. Verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. 
The reason God is so harsh on the king is because he's a king. He's not a commoner. He has great privilege, great authority. And so this, this, this striking out of God against uh, David is not to be misunderstood uh, as God is being too harsh. He's not. David's a king. And what he did was a huge deal. But the reason God does it is because he loves David, the king. He loves David enough to confront David. He loves David enough to consequence his behavior. He wants David to be all that he can be. And without the consequences, David won't learn the lesson. Just because there's consequences doesn't mean there wasn't forgiveness. No, it says right here, he forgives him. You're not going to die, David. But there are some consequences so that you can learn from your mistakes so as not to repeat them. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Notice that God still refers to her, whom David has married, as Uriah's wife. Isn't that fascinating? Child becomes sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, and he would not. Nor did he eat food with them, or yeah, with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him. He did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he had asked, they had set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. And when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. In summary, keep in mind, God is love. But true love requires justice. And it's justice that brings about repentance. And in that repentance, order is reestablished. Reconciliation takes place. And along comes restoration. That's why God does what he does. That's why we receive chastisement from the Lord from time to time. It's for our good. It's because he loves us. Don't lose sight of that. Know that the ultimate goal is your or my restoration. Keep in mind, God dwells in the midst of his people and he judges us. Why? He loves us. He wants us to be whole and happy. I want to give you a personal story to illustrate this as we close today. I'm going to change the names. Um, they were good friends of ours, uh, George and Sarah, Jay and Lisa. Jay was a seminary student back in the day, uh, prior to me even taking this pastorate. 
He was a seminary student. I was uh, in this particular seminary with him, actually. Uh, he was one of the students. I was in earlier, and he came later. Uh, but he was a seminary student answering the call of ministry on his life. And him and his wife were staying with George and Sarah because George was his youth pastor of the church. And so oftentimes they'd take uh, a young seminarian who didn't have the money to, to provide housing and go to school here in, in, in the city. A lot of times they would just stay with another family while they were in seminary. So Jay and Lisa were staying with George and Sarah. George was the youth pastor of our church. So they were with them until they could finish seminary, and then uh, they would take on their own pastoral assignment and, and uh, you know, carry on in that capacity. So in the middle of this, God showed me that Jay was in a full-blown sexual tryst with George's wife. I was shocked, you know, I was just like, what? But I was convinced God had showed me this. No one knew anything about it, just my wife and myself. He had revealed this to actually both of us when we had been talking, and she was convinced that that was what God was saying as, as well. So I knew I needed to talk to, to George uh, first and foremost. It was interesting. It was that week that I was invited by George to his house where him and his wife and Jay and Lisa were and their family because they were all staying together. He said, come on up. We're going to do a movie night. So I thought, okay, we'll go up for the movie. You know, we're going to have dinner, go up for the movie, and I'm going to find a way to interact and try to bring this word to my brother. So we were sitting around the dinner table had finished eating dinner, and we were all discussing this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we're all discussing the gifts of the Spirit, and, um, and we got into this whole issue of the word of knowledge. And, and George dismissed it as one of the gifts that's no longer in operation. He says, yeah, these particular category of gifts are no longer present today. They were a part of the apostolic era, but they, they don't work today. In fact, th those that say they move in the gift of knowledge, they're charlatans. You know, they're just deceiving people, and, and they're making all kinds of money on offerings with these fake words they give out. He says, it's not even real. I said, no, I disagree with you. Those gifts are not done away with. They're present today. God was setting up this whole thing right around the dinner table. And so really, be impressed, we moved to the next room and continued continue our, our discussion. And, um, and the interesting thing was, is when I told him I believed that this gift was still in operation, he started making fun of me and started, started mocking me concerning this gift. Even, he, you know, do you have it? Do you move in it? Yeah, right, sure. This is what everyone says, you know. And I thought, oh, my Lord, you have set this up tonight. So I told him, I said, yes, and I have a word from the Lord for you. God has given me some information for you. I said, do you want me to give that to you? He says, yeah, give it to me. I said, well, let's go. Let's go for a walk. He says, why do we need to go for a walk? I said, because I want to give you the message that the Lord has given me. He says, just give it to me in front of, in front of everyone. Why? Just give it to me now. I said, no, you're going to want to go on a walk with me. He says, no, give it to me now. I said, you have no idea what I'm going to tell you. He says, I don't even care. I have nothing to hide. Give me the word. I said, if you want, I'll give you the word in front of everyone. He says, forget it, forget it. You're just playing around. You know, charlatan, charlatan, you know, that whole thing. He says, besides, we're going to watch a movie, so let's get a movie. So his wife says, yeah, I'll go get the movie. She says, I already ordered it. It was 
at Blockbuster back in the day. I don't know if anyone's old enough. Don't raise that hand, okay? So his wife says, I'll go get the movie. So I said to Sarah, I said, I'll go with you. So I jumped in the car with Sarah, his wife, and we're going. She says, so what is that word? I said, your husband's involved with Lisa sexually. Full-blown deal. Lord showed me full-blown. She was shocked. She goes, no way. That would never happen. No, I know my husband, and we're close, and he would never do that. And if he was going to do something like that, he'd tell me ahead of time, you know? He would, he would not, he's not going to just go do something. And besides, Lisa's my best friend, lifelong best friend. She would never do that to me either. For sure, she wouldn't do that. She goes, you were wrong. This is not the word of the Lord. This is not the gift of knowledge. You don't know what you're talking about. She was very, very upset. So I just let that go. I said, you know what? Just, just ask your husband tonight when you go to bed. Just ask him. So he, she did. I get a phone call from George the next day. He said, uh, not only did you not hear from the Lord, but I want you to understand there's nothing going on between me and Lisa, not even in the slightest. I'm not even like, I have no, I have no like, she's not even my type. She, he said, there is nothing going on. He says, and you're stirring up a lot of trouble and you need to understand something. You're barking up the wrong tree. And I suggest you stop it now. So again, I met with his wife, and she was even more upset that week after a couple days than she was the night that I shared the word with her. And she basically told me the same thing that her husband did. They met with the other couple. The other couple was very upset with me. In the end, I ended up in the senior pastor's office. And I thought to myself, I, I have not missed this. I know I have not missed this. Don was convinced she had not missed this. But the whole thing was such a mess that I was called to the senior pastor's office. So I come into the senior pastor's office. He says, what is going on? So I told him the whole truth, nothing but the truth. He looked at me. He paused, moment of silence, and he says, the Lord has shown me the same exact thing. And he showed me last week at approximately the same time that he showed you. He says, and I am convinced that this is going on. Because <sighs> I did. I started to second-guess myself. And the last thing you want to do is create division. And I didn't want to create division. That's for sure. So, he met with the couples. He required the seminarian and his wife and family to get other housing while he looked into the matter. Everyone was in disbelief. Everyone was in de denial, except for me, Don, and the senior pastor. One week later, one week later, after a church oneg, a letter was found. It was actually given to Sarah. And the letter was from her husband and best friend. I want to read this to you. Well, let me, let me, just, let me just state what they said in the letter. I'm going to paraphrase. They said, hey, we're in love. We've been in love for quite some time. And we've been in an affair for quite some time. And we've both decided to leave our spouses 
families, children, and church to marry and build a new life together. They said that they had made this decision over some time and would not be changing their minds. I mean, shock and awe. Shock and awe. I want to read you a letter. This is the letter written by George some um, three years after the fact. It's an open letter to the church. I'm reading it because it's an open letter made public by him. It has been over three years since we left Denver and the church. We would like to express our deepest regrets and apologies for our actions, which caused so much pain and suffering to you, as well as the whole body of Christ. We acknowledge these things. We made permanent decisions for temporary problems. We have hurt the church and its members. We walked away from God. He did not walk away from us. There is no substitute for your family and for your church. We did not get away with anything. The consequences of our sins are grave and permanent. The anguish we have every day over our loss is terrifying. We miss and need the fellowship of the saints. Attending other denominations for us has been like attending someone else's family reunion. They are friendly and desire to feed us, but it is just not the same. Although we occasionally dance in the celebration of God's grace and forgiveness, we need the embrace of our church. We thank you for the support you gave to the individuals whom we have hurt. This letter was not written for your pity, but to remind everyone there is no escape from the result of sin. And since this is true, we have the understanding that the only relief from its symptoms is grace. Now, we ask for your forgiveness. And then they signed it. God is in the midst of his people. God loves us. One of the gifts, the gifts of knowledge, expresses that love. I picked a negative venue for the gift of knowledge. There are many positive venues for the gift of knowledge as well, where the words are powerful and affirming and set people free as well, right? I chose this one because it's something we're all familiar with. But what I wanted to do for our community is to remind us God is in our midst. We have his gift. And some of those gifts are the gifts of knowledge. And if you're involved in sin, repent, deal with it. I always say, keep your sins on a short list, confess them daily, ask for God's grace and empowerment to overcome them. But if you think you can get away with it and you persist into it long enough, one of us in the body with the gift of knowledge may come with a message for you. God forbid, may that never happen. I tell you these stories so that we can repent and stay, keep our sins on a short leash so we don't get to those places to begin with. And then on the other side, I want us to realize that the same gift of knowledge can also be used and should be used to build people up, to encourage people, to speak about their potential, to set hearts free that are bound in anxiety and discouragement. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are manifestations of God's presence with us. As we explore the gifts, ask God, what gifts have you been given? 
Discover the gifts that you have. Ask him for gifts you don't have, by the way. We're going to learn. As we go through this, you're going to be saying, man, I really like that gift. Ask God for it. Continue to ask him for it. Ask until he gives it to you. And then learn to move in it with love. With love. Remember what I said? It's got to be bathed in love. Without love, it's useless. But if you use that in a way that's loving and caring, you'll build up this body. And that's what God is all about. Building up the body. Shabbat shalom. That's all I had today. God is with you. God be with you this whole week. In Jesus' name, amen.